The old pilot's plain tales. The man who fell to earth. Fifty-three years ago, a man fell to earth. He came from space, having survived the appallingly hostile conditions that exist there. Apart from the hard vacuum, the electromagnetic radiation, the intense cold, the cosmic rays and other damaging particles that exist there, to get into orbit, a spacecraft must be accelerated to a speed of around 17,000 miles per hour. That's 28,000 kilometers per hour and then slowed down again when it's time to come home. A retired KGB officer, Benjamin Arasayev, claims that the man died cursing the people who put him inside his failing spacecraft one that had been hurriedly launched for no greater reason than to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the communist revolution. He overcame numerous difficulties on his journey to 130 miles, 210 kilometers above the earth, and had completed nearly 99% of his descent when the final failure of his doomed capsule doomed him as well. The launch of Soyuz 1 came 10 years after the Soviet Union's entry into the space race with the R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile rocket. Later that year, 1957, the world was shocked to hear the bleeps from Sputnik 1, the world's first artificial satellite, as it orbited the Earth. A few months on, and a stray dog from the streets of Moscow would be the first animal sent into space. Leica was fired into space on a one-way journey, since there was no way to bring her crude capsule back. She didn't live long, and perished from overheating and carbon dioxide poisoning, and the little mongrel was the first to give her life in the fight to conquer space. Ten years later, the first human gave his life during a space flight. By that time, successful manned missions by both the Soviets and the Americans were becoming reasonably common. Yuri Gagarin, shortly followed by Alan Shepard, were the first. Larger two-crew capsules were launched, then the first woman in space and the first satellite to leave Earth's orbit the first geostationary orbit, the first spacewalk and the first docking of a spacecraft. Achievements were coming thick and fast and all driven at a race pace dictated by the competition between the two superpowers. And came the mission of Vladimir Komarov aboard Soyuz 1. Komarov, a highly qualified engineer, fighter pilot and test pilot, had been the backup cosmonaut for several previous missions, but finally got his chance when he commanded Voskhod 1 in 1964. This was the seventh Soviet crewed mission, and due to limitations of weight and size, the occupants flew without spacesuits. 
They even had to diet so they could fit into the tiny capsule, which was basically the same as the single-seat spacecraft that Gagarin had used on the first manned spaceflight. Komarov's flight was successful, but was nicknamed the Circus because of the confused crew selection, the lack of spacesuits, the dieting needed, the absence of a launch escape system, meaning certain death if the boosters failed, and the unexpected change of Soviet premier from Khrushchev to Brezhnev that occurred whilst the capsule was in orbit. The circus mission, though, went smoothly when compared with Komarov's next flight on Soyuz 1. Vladimir Komarov and Soviet hero Yuri Gagarin, the first human to reach outer space, were close friends, and Gagarin was down as the backup cosmonaut for the flight. It was supposed to be a spectacular achievement, involving the launch of Soyuz 1, followed the next day by Soyuz 2, with a crew of two. The spacecraft were to link up in orbit, and then Komarov would spacewalk across to the other craft and change places with a cosmonaut there, who would move over to the Soyuz 1 capsule and return to Earth in it. Apparently, before the Soyuz mission, Gagarin and a team of senior technicians inspected the spacecraft and found a long list of structural problems, most of which were considered serious. He composed a ten-page memo detailing the dangers and recommending that the mission be postponed. He gave this to his best friend in the KGB, Venyamin Rasev, to forward to Moscow. Gagarin raised doubts about the design, manufacture and safety of the spacecraft and he asked Premier Brezhnev to address the lack of response to his and other cosmonauts' concerns. Those who saw the memo lost their jobs, were demoted or posted far away. Rasayev himself was reduced in rank and when he asked why Komarov didn't just refuse the mission... Komarov answered that if he didn't make this flight, they'd just send the backup pilot, his friend Gagarin, instead. Komarov and Gagarin weren't alone in their concerns, and on launch day, April the 23rd, 1967, a Russian journalist, Yaroslav Golovanov, reported that Gagarin showed up at the launch site and demanded to be put onto the mission. He failed. Golovanov noted this strange behaviour and afterwards realised that Gagarin might be trying to get onto the flight to save his friend. Despite three previous failures of Soyuz rockets on unmanned missions and the concern shown by Gagarin himself, political pressure ensured that the launch went ahead and at first things seemed to be going well. Unlike earlier explosions on the launch pad, the rocket successfully pushed the capsule into orbit, but it was there, 130 miles above the Earth, that things began to fail. One of the solar panels refused to unfold and stayed wrapped around the capsule, leading to a dramatic reduction in available power. This had several knock-on consequences, such as power for manoeuvring and docking. Komarov even tried kicking the side of the capsule in an attempt to free it, but to no avail. 
He used the reaction control jets to bring his only working solar panel into sunlight, but the spacecraft continually span out of position. All the while, communication with his controllers on the ground was patchy, to say the least. Radio antennas attached to the failed solar panel hadn't deployed, and the surface of the Sun-Star navigation sensor had either been contaminated or was blocked by the undeployed solar panel. Whatever. It was useless. Without this essential piece of hardware, Soyuz 1 couldn't maintain accurate attitude control for some crucial manoeuvres, including spin stabilisation or engine firing. In turn, without the stabilisation, Komarov couldn't effectively expose his only solar panel to the sun to recharge his batteries. The Soyuz 1 mission was effectively a failure, and finally the decision was made to cancel the Soyuz 2 launch due to thunderstorms. In addition to cutting the power supply, the unopened solar panel created an asymmetry in the mass of the spacecraft, and Komarov was required to move from the commander's central position to the left seat in an attempt to rebalance the spacecraft. The flight managers in Crimea realised that preparations for landing should start as soon as possible, while the spacecraft still had power in its batteries. However, they were overruled by the State Commission, which advised Komarov to repeat attempts to establish spin stabilisation of the spacecraft manually. Komarov made unsuccessful attempts, and in doing so, overused the fuel in one of his two control systems. Eventually, all agree that the spacecraft should be brought home on the 17th orbit. At the appointed time, Soyuz 1 initiated the re-entry sequence. The main engine was supposed to fire for 146 seconds, but nothing happened. Ballistics reports pouring in indicated that Soyuz 1's orbital parameters hadn't changed. Once communication with Komarov was re-established, the cosmonaut reported that the ion orientation system appeared to have worked fine, but evidently, as the ship had crossed the equator, it flown into an ion pocket in the Earth's shadow, where the concentration of the ions was less than the sensors could detect. The ship's control system issued a command to prohibit the firing of the main retro engine. Immediately after the failure of the ionic system, Komarov tried another strategy, which was highly complicated, untested on any mission, and certainly one Komarov had never trained for. First, as Soyuz 1 flew over the daylight side of the Earth, Komarov started flying the capsule manually, using the Earth's horizon to maintain attitude. Then, about 35 minutes later, as the ship entered shadow, he transferred attitude control to the ship's internal gyroscopes, and after emerging from the shadow, he checked the attitude again. If necessary, he would make final adjustments and then fire the main engine to deorbit. The first attempt failed, because when Komarov turned on the manual control system, the orientation engines didn't work. There appeared to be no fuel consumption. With battery power falling dangerously low, he was told that on the 19th orbit, it would try a ballistic re-entry and not a guided one. Using manual orientation, Komarov aligned the Soyuz and fired the engine. 
afterwards. In a calm tone, he reported that the engine fired for the required 146 seconds and all was normal. Soyuz 1 slowed and arced downwards into the upper atmosphere and before the friction and heat of re-entry disrupted communications, Komarov made his final radio calls to tell those below that he felt excellent and everything was in order. Thank you to everyone, he said. Despite all claim to the contrary, I believe that these calm words were indeed the last to be heard from the cosmonaut. Data indicated that the capsule was on a proper trajectory and that despite the many problems he encountered during his short flight, Vladimir Komarov was on his way home. Near the landing site, an AN-12 search aircraft reported seeing the Soyuz capsule in the air and then the rescue helicopter spotted burning on the ground. Later it would be established that as the capsule tumbled through the atmosphere, its drogue chutes deployed, but then they failed to pull out the main parachute from its container. The backup reserve parachute was deployed, but it became entangled with the drogue chute, turning the spacecraft into an unstoppable projectile. The capsule hit the ground at a tremendous speed, flattening the six-foot, two-meter-tall descent module to half its height, and caused the solid-fuel rockets at the base of the Soyuz to explode. The fire destroyed anything that had survived the impact, leaving only molten wreckage. Komarov was the first human to perish during a spaceflight. The exploration of space has been one of man's greatest accomplishments, and it's testament to the skill of the technicians, engineers, scientists and pilots on both sides of the Iron Curtain that it was achieved with such success. To put it into perspective, in 1967, the same year as this accident, around 79 aircrew in the US military and 62 in the Royal Air Force died in aircraft accidents, flying in an environment that we know well. The death of Vladimir Komarov was, of course, deeply felt in the Soviet Union, but his bravery was also honoured by American astronauts. Apollo 15 left a plaque and a tiny figure of an astronaut on the moon to honour all those killed whilst reaching for the stars, including Komarov. And the crew of Apollo 11 left medals honouring both Komarov and Gagarin. Of course, the pinnacle of the Cold War space race was the moment Apollo 11 landed on the surface of the moon. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. With only one way to return and rendezvous with their command module, failure was always a possibility. Had the lunar module failed to launch from the surface, death for the two stranded astronauts would have been inevitable and if such an event occurred, the President had a speech prepared that echoed a poem by Rupert Brooke to give to the waiting world. 
Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a Mother Earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same, but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied, but these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. My enormous thanks to voiceover artist Greg Willits for his poignant reading of President Nixon's speech, thankfully never used. You can find Greg at gregwillits.com. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you could find that and all the other Plain Tales at airlinepilotguy.com.